you take your Bibles and turn to the Old Testament, 1 Chronicles chapter 28 is where we're going to start. We'll land in 1 Chronicles 29, but start in 1 Chronicles 28. If you don't have your Bibles, there's some underneath your seats or it's going to be on the screens. And uh, we're in our last couple of weeks of talking about David and the pressure points that changed his life and those uh, that were under his leadership. And this morning, as I have uh, thought about going through life, there are some things that never change. Um, I listen to sports radio a little bit on my mile commute to work. And um, as I listen, I know this uh, about uh, sports radio is uh, they are the greatest coaches on Monday, aren't they? Being a Monday quarterback is pretty easy, and they know exactly what to do, and so do we. Uh, Think about the weather people. They're the only people that get up and talk about the weather, and it can be completely wrong, and they still have a job every day. <laughs> and I thought about predictions. Uh, many times in life, I can tell somebody else what to do, and I think I could do what they're doing much better than they're doing it. <laughs> and I thought about predictions. We are always good at trying to predict things, whether it's the outcome of a game, a presidential election, who's going to win the best picture at the Oscars, but there's a few things I know about predictions. The first one is this, that predictions are unpredictable. They're just unpredictable. Predictions are unreliable. We think we know, but most of the time we don't. And experts are really not expert. I want you to to think about it. Uh, I don't know about you, but if you look at a few of these things, Who would have thought after 108 years that the Chicago Cubs would have won the World Series? I mean, anybody? Oh, we got one Cub fan. I'm sorry. If you follow the NFL, uh, you think about drafts. There is not one person from Mel Kuyper to anybody on ESPN that said the first quarterback would be picked with this guy named Mitch Trubisky from North Carolina. Listen to this. He was rated with a 6.3 as quarterbacks. You know what that means? That means this, that at one day he might have a chance, he might have a chance to be a starter in the NFL. First quarterback pick, nobody did that. All the news experts, Anderson Cooper down the list, not one of them picked that this man would be our next president. (laughs) They predicted the stock market would crash. It did the exact opposite. Or the Oscars, La La Land won. No, they didn't win. (laughs) And who would have predicted for the first time ever that they messed that up and gave the picture to the wrong people? Think about this number. Does anybody know what this number is? 91 and 237. 91 and 237. No one would have predicted. That's the Los Angeles Lakers record over the last four years. (laughs) No one would have predicted that they would be that bad. Predictions, they're unpredictable. No one predicted David would be king. If you've been here for a while, you understand. No one was betting on this 16-year-old shepherd boy hanging out in the fields. The youngest of seven would be the one that would be the king. He was the nobody nobody noticed. No one could have predicted or imagined what he would have done over his 40-year reign. And no one would have predicted the impact he still has on the kingdom of God thousands of years later. No one except God. David's life was coming to an end. Uh, He was about ready to pass from this earth. And in chapter 28, he gathers his leaders 
He gathers his people for really one of the last times as he shares his farewell speech. It's an end of an era that's coming upon him. And I could imagine the scene as he stands before those people whom he has led for years. As he stands before those who have followed with him and he looks into their faces and he stands by their side. And they represent families and warriors and confidants and brothers and sisters. And he stands before them with his last parting words. And I can just imagine, as he's getting up in age and his health is deteriorating, I, I can imagine his voice was probably shaking a little bit. His heart was full as he was about ready to tell him his pans and what, what God had really birthed inside of his heart. What he felt his, his next step was and what he believed was his last thing he was going to do before he passed away. I could see him excited. I could see him a little bit nervous. But he was going to paint a picture of something that wasn't yet to be. Something that was going to live beyond him. See, leaders are, are to dream big dreams. They're to help people see beyond what they can see. They're to paint pictures of what could be, not what is. Leaders are people who don't settle. They are people who, who look to the future. And with the future in mind, continue to ask God to lead them and to guide them. David uh, was growing old. And this was probably it. So he rose to his feet and he was going to address his followers. And he said these words, I feel like God's called me to build a house. To build a sanctuary, to, to have what's called the Ark of the Covenant, the very presence of God tangibly in a temple, in a place where it would rest and God's presence would rest. And this was on his heart and this is what he wanted to do. But no one could have predicted what would happen next. Because God had a different plan. He had a different speech in mind. The thing I love about David, when God asked him to do something that wasn't best for him personally, David usually did what was best. Because he trusted God. So he gathers them and he tells them what's been in his heart. And God steps in and changes everything. I had in my heart to build a temple but chapter 28, verse 3, he says this, but God, you might want to underline those two words, but God. But God said to me, you are to not to build a house for my name because you are a warrior and you have shed blood. But God came and interrupted his plans, came and changed the trajectory of history, came and said, David, it's not you, it's going to be someone else. He had a but God moment. Let me ask you, uh, do you have any room in your life for God to come in and interrupt your life? Are you available this morning as David was for the but God moments when he comes in and you have a plan and you know where you think you're supposed to go and he says, no, no, I'm going to turn you in a different way. David's listen to the voice of God. You're not the right leader. You're a warrior. You've shed blood. I'm going to bring in another leader. And it's actually going to be your son Solomon. In a couple weeks on Father's Day, we're going to go back to this section and we're going to unpack chapter 28. But for now, God's call was on Solomon. Plans changed. And who would have expected that the son of Bathsheba would be the next king? 
the adulterous relationship brought the next king. Who would have imagined that God was doing something behind the scenes that said, David, it's not about you. It's way bigger than you. And I just am going to ask you to trust me. And we move into chapter 29, verse 1, and it says this. And King David said to the whole assembly, my son, Solomon, the one whom God has chosen, he's young and he's inexperienced. The task is great because this palatial structure is not for man, but for the Lord God. Now, I'm going to guess that this was an intimidating moment for, for Solomon. I mean, think about it. He's following his, his dad. But he's following the king who was beloved after 40 years. And I don't know about the introduction from dad. There was three things that were said in this verse. Only one was important. God's called him. And the other two characteristics weren't very good or are very compelling for anyone to follow. He's young and he's inexperienced. For those of you who a leader would stand up and somebody would introduce him, they would say, hey, we just want to introduce our new leader to you and to inspire you. They would say, he's called by God, but just understand he's young and he's inexperienced. He has no idea what he's doing. <laughs> and you as followers would go, wait a minute, do I have a say in this? I'm not sure I want to follow that. But David gives those two characteristics for his son. And I started to think, I wonder what David was thinking. I got 40 years. I could build this temple in my sleep. I, I got this. These people trust me. We could move. And God said, no, it's not going to be about you. You know what? In God's word, it never says, hey, I hope all of you guys understand what I'm doing. It never asks us to understand everything. But he always comes back and says, will you trust me? Even when you don't understand me. I think it was one of those moments for David. Will you trust me, David? I know it doesn't make any sense, but I got this. So David sets this young, inexperienced leader up, and he gave him a foundation to lead way beyond his ability. Uh, let me tell you what David had done under his 40 years. They now were a united nation when they were once divided. The capital had been established in Jerusalem, and their military forces were respected by all of their enemies, and all of their enemies had been subdued at this time. Under David's leadership, their boundaries had grown from 6,000 square miles to 60,000 square miles. They had acquired land. They had grown. And now as their enemies were subdued, their economy was booming. Their community was prosperous. They were a people that feared God and respected God and were trying to seek God. And all of a sudden, David's leadership is now passed to this young and inexperienced man. But he gave him a foundation that is envied by many. This one flawed, sinful man God chose to use and set a new course for Solomon and his leadership. And he said, here you go, you young and inexperienced leader. We have set up the next generation to do great things for our God. Then it comes to the temple. David had already bought the land. David gave Solomon all of the plans because they were done. He provided all the materials. He gave them the leaders to lead. And then he provided all of the workers to do the job. David had it all ready to go, and God said, you're not going to build it. Thanks for getting it all ready. I'm giving it to this young and inexperienced son of yours, Solomon. Not only did he pass all that on willingly, he said, it says here in the text in chapter 29, verse 2, that with all my resources, I have provided for the temple of my God. Not only am I going to set you up, but I am willingly going to give from my resources. 
And it tells us there in, in chapter 29, it says, With all my resources, I provided gold for gold and silver for silver, in verse 2, bronze and iron and wood and onyx and turquoise and stones of various colors and all kinds of stone and marble. Besides my devotion, God, I'm going to give my personal treasure now of gold and of silver to cap it all off. When you look at the 3,000 talents of gold that, that David gave, it equates to about 110 tons of gold. Tons and tons of silver. This gift was overwhelming. And so David, as this leader that was on his way out and an era was closing, he says, I'm giving pretty much everything I got. And in 29 verse 5, the second part of it, he then invites everybody else into this picture. And he says, now who is willing to consecrate themselves to the Lord today? Who's willing to join me and to give unto the house of God? And some of us might wonder, and with 110 tons, why does he need anybody else's gold, silver, money? He doesn't. He doesn't need anybody, but he understood it wasn't about their gifts, it was about the heart of the giver. It wasn't about their stuff, it was about a sacrifice. David's last speech about, wasn't about building his kingdom and making an idol unto himself, it was actually about building God's and inviting others into the joy of giving. Isn't it interesting that one of David's last speeches is about giving everything willingly unto God? And he doesn't demand it, he just simply asks, who is willing? That word consecrate means to set yourself apart, to dedicate oneself to someone else. And David was saying, hey, I want you to go one step further. Many of you have been givers, many of you have contributed, but I'm asking you to go above and consecrate yourself this day that you would honor God with everything that you have. It's the same word that was used when someone would be ordained into the priesthood in the Old Testament. They put them on the same level. When someone was to become a priest, they were giving everything that they had. And David uses that same word to say, I'm asking you to consecrate yourself before God Almighty today with everything that you have. Who is willing? Uh, you know why I, I love to talk about giving? Because it's hard for you to hear. It's hard for, for, for me to hear when I'm sitting there and I, somebody else is up here because it actually comes against our nature. But I love to talk about it because I think when we break our natural nature, it's actually when God has a chance to break through. And sometimes it doesn't happen until we're willing to say, hey, God, everything is yours. And I love to talk about it because we begin to wrestle. And I watch some of your faces and, and I watch people walk out in the middle of my sermon in the last service and on Saturday night and I go, yes, they're wrestling with God. This is good. Because I understand that until this gets right in your heart, you'll never be fully right with your God. And I love that David says, I'm asking you, would you willingly step in? You might have heard a, some pastors say, hey, you need to give until it hurts. <laughs> and you know what? That's a lie. And it's not true. Because if you give that way, it's not worth giving. David says, hey, anybody want to join me? Anybody feel like God's moving in their heart? If so, that's awesome. If not, that's okay. But here's what David says. Would you give willingly and joyfully 
because that's what God's looking for. I said to Maddie yesterday morning, I, when I walked by, I said, man, I love, to, I love to talk on money. And she looked at me like I was crazy. And I said, no, I, I, I do, because I don't think money has a hold on me. And I said, does money have a hold on me? And she goes, no, it doesn't have a hold on you. You don't have that much to hold, so it doesn't really matter. <laughs> <laughs> but I really, it doesn't have a hold on me, I don't think. And I ask just to verify. I think how you look at money matters. I was thinking about my son. He got his first job. He's gainfully employed now. And that's really cool. And so I said to Nolan when he got his first check a few weeks ago, I said, all right, uh, here's what we're going to do. You know, from all your little stuff, and when you got money from birthdays and all that, we, we would ask him to tithe on that. And so I said, Nolan, I have an envelope now, and uh, it'll be out, and on Mondays, all that says is tithe. And I want you to take your first 10% of what you make, and I want you to put it in this envelope. And you know what's been cool for my son? Because he's been doing it with little amounts. That first 10 bucks that went in here, wasn't that big a deal. Here it is. Because... The first hundred he made, the first 10% went to God. The other night he came in, and I hadn't seen him all day, and it was payday, and I said, hey, did you put your tithe in yet? And he goes, no. And he just pulled out his wallet, he opened it up, and he laid it on our nightstand. And I woke up, and it was really on Maddie. She's like, why is there 20 bucks on my nightstand? <laughs> I said, Nolan's tithing. And every month I'm going to turn this in for him. And I pray that when he leaves my home, which is in a few months, that this will just become something natural, that he will realize that everything is God's. And that he will willingly continue to give when it's 100, when it's 200, when it's 2,000, when it's 10,000, whenever, whatever God asks. The people gave willingly. And here's where it started, First Chronicles 29.9. 1 Chronicles 29.9. Hey, let me go back because I missed the scripture and this is a really good one. 29.6. Go back to that, okay? Then the leaders of the families, 29.6. The officers, the tribes of Israel, the commanders of thousands, the commanders of hundreds, and the officials in charge of the king's work gave willingly. David looked to all the leaders to set the pace. And he said, hey, leaders, I need you to set the pace because... Uh, Something happens when leaders step together and they unify and they give. He says, I'm asking all of you to give. And it says they gave willingly. They gave 46,610 tons of precious metal. So you had David, 110 tons. Then you got another 46,000 tons. You bring all that together. Things were happening. People were looking at this and probably overwhelmed when they saw the visual picture. But I say to our leaders here, hey, if you're a leader and you're not a giver, you're really not a leader. You're just pretending yourself. Leaders give. They give their time or their talent. They give of their treasure. If you aren't a giver, you're not a leader. They go hand in hand. And men, if you want to leave your family at home, how you spend your money matters. And maybe you need to ask your wife like I did, hey, um, does money got a hold of me? And whose kingdom do you think I'm building, mine or God's? 
see what this response is. They gave willingly, and now let's go to verse 9. It says, here's what happened. The people rejoiced at the willing response of their leaders, for they had given freely and they had given wholeheartedly to the Lord. David, the king, also rejoiced greatly. I bet there was a huge celebration. I bet when they looked, they were overwhelmed. And it was because David just went and said, hey, who's willing to consecrate themselves? It's between you and God. Would you give? And the leaders gave, and the people rejoiced, and things started to happen. Paul said it like this in the New Testament. He said in 2 Corinthians 9, each of you should give what you've decided in your heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to bless you abundantly. So that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. God is able to bless you because he owns it all. And David, after he gathered all this, he stopped and it says in chapter 29 that he praised the Lord. And in the presence of the whole assembly, in verse 11, he says, Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in the heavens and the earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hand are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give thanks to you and we praise your glorious name. David was reminding them that everything that they had was God's first. And they didn't own anything. They were just stewards of everything he had given them. We have a, uh, a value here called radical generosity. And as a staff and as leadership, we say it like this, that we're giving out of gratitude by holding nothing back. And we come in with a mindset, and if you join our staff, we have a conversation about giving, that that's the first thing you do, that we expect you to give here. And that when we ask for sacrifice, leaders lead first. And we are radically generous. And if you have been at this church, you understand, we have some radically generous people here. And so what does this mean for all of us today? Well, here's what it is as we wrap everything up. When you live and give beyond you, God always does more than you could ever imagine. When you live and give beyond you, God always does more than you could ever imagine. I read an article this last week about remembrance. And it was talking about remembering the past. All those things that uh, set up where you are today. Remember and don't forget. And it said many times in the church, we forget to look back and remember all that God has done. And it was like a couple weeks ago. On Memorial Day, when we remembered those who served our country, in every service, all of you stood to your feet as we just gave thanks for veterans and people who had given their lives for us. We remember. And God says, hey, don't forget where you came from. Remember. And remembrance always allows you, I believe, to live beyond where you are today. And so I was thinking about that. If you were a church expert in 2003 and you had a prediction for Friends Church, if you came in and you evaluated this place, I think you would have predicted, as many did, that Friends Church won't survive. If you were around here, it was a little bit dire, and the prediction would have been we wouldn't have survived. I just want to remind you something. Um, predictions are unpredictable. Predictions are unreliable, and experts aren't really experts. 
the cool thing about that was we didn't survive, we thrived. 11 years ago this weekend, we moved into this building. And this building right here, 11 years old, hard to believe, 2006, this building wasn't supposed to exist. When I came back as pastor, uh, many people told me not to come back because they said, it's a sinking ship. And I said, I'm not coming back because I think I can do anything. There's only one person that can save this place, and it's God. And either God's going to show up and do a miracle, or it ain't happening. And I could tell you story after story of God showing up. I can then tell you story after story of the enemy trying to derail. I can tell you of sitting in a meeting when I was told that we would be over $500,000 to the negative in the first year. My first job was to let 32 people or so go from staff. I can tell you when banks, they said they would never give us a loan. The first option for this building was to tear it down until they found out it was going to be $7 million to tear it down. And it's almost <laughs> that's that much to build it. So that wasn't a good option. But God showed up. And the enemy kept trying to derail us, so we were building this building, and, and I remember walking in here one day, and the drywall in the basement had gone in, and I was excited because the roof was on, and everything was good, and we're moving forward, and it was El Nino season, and I don't know if you remember that year, it rained a lot, and uh, we had some roof leaks. And then the next day or the next week, I came in, and there was at least a foot of water in the basement, and all the drywall was ruined, $1.2 million in damage. We didn't have $1.2 million. Two weeks before this building was to open, our grand opening, we were getting ready to print everything. Everything was going to the printers. Scaffolding was down. We turned on the lights. Some of you remember this. We turned on the lights, and uh, you couldn't, in half the seats, read your Bible because the lighting schematic was wrong. Something like 1.4 million, and we had to put scaffolding back up in another six weeks. That's just two things that happened. And I looked, and I've watched God since then. And this group of people called friends never lived with a scarcity mentality. Scarcity means insufficient or shortness of supply. We just believe God had it. And we opened up in 2006. And that's why every time I come in this building, I am reminded again that this is only of God. And we were not smart enough to buy something in 2003, but God allowed us to buy a shopping center. And, and uh, we sold that, and we sold it. I told this story a few months ago for $16 million, and we paid off a huge chunk of debt, uh, which allows us to be debt-free in this church with, uh, under 10 years from now. Uh, we paid off almost $7 million in debt, and, and God's used that money, and we're getting ready to build the pavilion out there and redo the upper campus. But beyond that, God is setting us up for some other great things. I talked about some of the tax money that we saved by being a nonprofit, which is like $3.9 million in tax money that we saved because uh, we didn't have to pay this certain capital gains tax, which is really cool. But our elders, your leaders, here's what they decided to do. They said, hey, um, we don't have a scarcity mentality, so why don't we tithe on that? And why don't we help other churches get out of debt within our family of churches? And what would it look like if we gave that $400,000 and set a foundation to match gifts with other churches? And so we have about 13 churches right now that are on the list that want to get out of debt. And one just raised almost $30,000 in a campaign, and we matched that $30,000. And they just paid off their note, and they are going to be debt-free once that check comes in from us. That's what your church did. Pretty cool. 
And I began looking since 2008 when we started uh, to give beyond just our general account and actually care for people around the corner and around the world. Uh, you have given $13,739,000 to Global Freedom since 2008. And this church is a church filled with radical givers who willingly give to God. And I started looking at all of those things. And when a church, last couple of weeks in our family of churches, couldn't make payroll, our elders decided to make payroll for them. And we wrote them a check for almost $50,000 to help them take the next steps and to do what God's called them to do. We just decided that out of God's generosity to us, we were in a season.